All right, welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Thirsty Thursday number 30. Um, Bobby just joined us and Ben's gonna be joining us here uh, shortly. We're very excited and honored tonight to have uh, Chief Jerry Tracy from FDMI with us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of shop tonight. We've got a lot of questions we got to ask him, and I'm sure a lot of pearls of wisdom that are going to come our way, both from him and from Bobby. And, uh, and we'll give Ben some credit, too. He might come up with something good once he gets on. Um, Ben's a little late tonight. Uh, he's actually at his Dungeons & Dragons uh, monthly meeting. So as soon as he gets done with that, um, he'll be back with us. So a couple things uh, before we get started. Uh, again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and uh, for our special guests, but we also wanna make sure that we uh, acknowledge and recognize uh, what this weekend's gonna be, especially on, uh, on Monday, we have Memorial Day coming up. And a little bit of background on that, certainly uh, we look at that as an opportunity to you know, honor and uh, you know, mourn the loss of those US military members that have made the supreme sacrifice. And of course, it's a time for us to get together with family and uh, kind of kick off the summer in a lot of places. But uh, it didn't become a national holiday until 1971, but it actually started right after the Civil War. So a lot of great, a lot of great history. If you get a chance to look it up and um, yeah, really read up on it a little bit, I think you'd be pretty amazed. Uh, two things. And when Ben uh, comes on a little bit later, I want to go ahead and put their pictures up. But uh, we have people who serve and have a life, of, a life of service in a lot of different ways. Some of those folks are firefighters and in the military. Some are police officers and in the military. And we kind of go back and forth. And again, these people live the life of service. And a couple I just wanted to uh, recognize really quick. And as people are listening to the show, if you want to put some stuff over in the comments, some folks that you know are in that same category, please do so we can uh, duly acknowledge those folks. But uh, firefighter paramedic Mike McMullen uh, from the Salisbury Fire Department, Ben's department, uh, he was a National Guard sergeant and was injured in battle uh, Christmas Eve of 2005 in Iraq. Unfortunately, he succumbed to those injuries about two weeks later and uh, passed away on January 10th, 2006. And for those of us, I think, you know, Bobby, you remember when we went and did the standby for Salisbury and uh, Chief Gladwell, um, you know, very, very good friend of him and the family. Uh, you know, he was uh, very struck by that. That was very hard for that department. Uh, and also recognize uh, firefighter Chris Slutman. He was with uh, Ladder 27 FDMY. He was a 15 year veteran of that department. He's also a staff sergeant with the United States Marine Corps, and uh, he was killed in action April 8th of 2019 by a roadside bomb near uh, Bagram, Afghanistan. And he also uh, started his fire service career uh, as a volunteer in Kentland in, in uh, Prince George's County in Maryland. So we're as large as we are as an industry. Sometimes we're still a very small, tight knit family. And uh, you know, again, if we have anybody uh, you know, you'd like to recognize and uh, make sure that we honor them appropriately with this Memorial Day coming up. And you know, thanks to all those who are currently serving and have also served in the past. We want to make sure that uh, we say thank you to all of you. So with that, um, Bobby, I'm going to kick it over to you. And then Chief Tracy, if you wouldn't mind, give yourself an introduction after uh, Bobby gets done with his pearls of wisdom and we'll get on with the show. Uh, well, welcome, Chief Tracy. Thank you for coming on. And uh uh, you know, uh, in 1982, I was a 17-year-old young man, and uh, I joined the U.S. Navy. And uh, my first uh, my first tour was part of the multinational peacekeeping force in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, I didn't know anything about overseas or anything like that till I got there, and I was kind of became a very quick study as to what was going on over there. It was kind of at the height of the 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 Lebanese, uh, Palestinian, and Israeli conflict, basically. Um, and the group that relieved us, uh, sadly, were their barracks were bombed, 
and uh, we lost uh, nearly 400 people um, in, in that attack too. So that's kind of my connection to this to this weekend, and it's kind of it's kind of sad, but it's we're, we're sad because I really like warm weather and I like being outside, and I love not wearing my mask in stores anymore. And there's lots of really good things going on in my life right now, but this really is a weekend where you got to kind of push yourself to not just have barbecues, but think about you know those those guys and girls that didn't come home. So, um, you know, everyone uh, have a, a very good Memorial Day weekend, but always take a little time to think about those that didn't come home. Jerry? What kind of ship were you on? I was on the LST 1181, the USS Sumter. He, he was getting ready to say a gray one. Don't give him too much credit there. Landing, <laughs> landing ship tank. Yes, sir. Yes. yes. Flat bottom boat. Yes. Very much drafted 18 feet. And was 500 feet long. I was on. Flat. <laughs> I was on. Well, in the 60s, it was an APD, uh, high speed transport, uh, 312 feet long, 33 feet wide, and basically it was a converted destroyer escort that they put boat davits on it. And our main mission was to carry UDT and seals. And to say high speed transport, the best we could do was. 23 knots, and that was taking all the furniture out of the wardroom and throwing it in the boiler. <laughs> so uh, I was fortunate that there's only three APDs on the West Coast, so we would do uh, a scheduled uh, nine-month cruise at a time. So I uh, was fortunate to go over and have uh, two tours in the South China Sea. Uh, it sounded like you're East Coast, so you never experienced the town of Alongapo in Luzon, the Philippines. That was an experience. Let's put it that I, way. I did hear about it from other guys, but no, I didn't. Alongapo, yeah. <laughs> I love it. No shit, by me Honda. That's uh, the stuff we can't talk about on this show, as a matter of fact. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, before you came on, Trevor and I, uh, I had brought up the fact that I was listening to some prior broadcasts and I brought up the fact that in one of the broadcasts, you were mentioning some statistics, if you will. I believe there were statistics of, let's say, civilian fatalities and firefighter fatalities. And I believe you had used a comment that this is the number of the people we killed and these are the numbers of the firefighters we killed. I believe that was the quote. And because I also mentioned that John Tippett, he was on with uh, Ron Sarnicki. When he was talking about civilian fatalities, he also used that same comment, people that we kill. And I tell you what, that, that got my attention. That's a red flag. We didn't kill those people. That fire started without us. And whatever the circumstances were, whether they were trapped, uh, whether there was a rapid fire development or things like that. I mean, we could talk about Polk County and that event that, you know, but we don't have to go there. Still, if we never showed up, that woman would have died in that, in that private dwelling. Uh, could we say that uh, some departments, when they showed up, they made things worse? Eh, that's possible. Uh, or to say we killed those firefighters? No. I say we failed those firefighters. Either we failed in training uh, or we failed 
in a culture. And some people, you know, they they balk at, you know, and even Ron Sarnicki uh, used the word fire, the fire service culture. And they also said that they are not against interior aggressive firefighting. They made that, <laughs> that point right up front. And let's put it this way. If you joined this profession, whether it was a volunteer, whether you were paid, you raised your hand to do your duty. And you've heard a chief even say, when I come into the firehouse, like, you're on duty. When you raised your hand, that's when you took the move to say, what I do and when I do it, it's hopefully it's going to be aggressive because someday it's going to have to be aggressive to save the life of a civilian or it's going to have to be aggressive to save the life of a firefighter. And I mean, if, if there's some chiefs that are, uh, against aggressive interior attack, what are you going to do when a firefighter's trapped and water's going to save them? You know, when I'm standing in front of a room of uh, firefighters, we talk about, uh, RIT teams, rapid intervention teams, or New York City, uh, FAST, firefighter assistance search teams. What is a RIT team? And I stand there and I say, men with tools. <laughs> so it is, right? Okay, it's a team. And you allow them to do a size up. Hopefully, uh, if it's a private dwelling, you allow them to split up. Who can do a size up from the rear, things like that. Because if they have to deploy, do you want it to be blind mice syndrome or Five or however many guys it is all going in the same direction? Or is it possible that they should have done a size-up, given the ability to do a size-up? Maybe they can come in from a two-prong approach? Doesn't that make sense? You know, if, if it's a basement, uh, somebody's trapped in a basement, have a team go in the front and maybe have a team go to the side window and make that window a door, cut it down to the foundation, cut a hole. In other words, come in from two different directions. Allow them to think outside the box. Men with tools. But men with tools, if firefighters, and how many private dwelling fires, they enter the front door and they wind up in the basement right away because they didn't know it was uh, a basement fire or they didn't perform that size up uh, or they didn't know the, the house in the neighborhood. Maybe it was uh, a relocator. Maybe it was mutual aid because everybody else is out of a fire. You have to know your district. You really should know your battleground. And if firefighters fall into the basement, men with tools are not going to save them. A backup line might save them. And that's why, and, and I had mentioned to Trevor earlier, I had heard one philosophy, people before water. And I says, you know what? Just that term alone could be dangerous. That title alone is could be dangerous. I know what the chief means. Yeah, it's about saving life. That's why I said when we raised our hand, we took an oath. It's about them. Well, that's a given. You don't have to walk into the firehouse and tell, unless it's a, a, a kitchen full of slugs, then it's a training issue, and then it might be a disciplinary issue to straighten them out. And, and even there, I'll ask you this. And some people think it's the officers that set the tone. Or in New York City, yeah, it's the, it's the captain of the company that sets the tone. I'll tell you what, it's the members that set the tone. Because 
Who are you going to answer to? Your peers. You know, I was fortunate. I got hired. I went to the Bronx for five years. Uh, I kid around and I tell people, and I went to an engine. I went to a, a, an excellent engine company. We were good at our job. Uh, in the Bronx, you had uh, H-type multiple dwellings. These are ordinary construction. And to say H-type, that's if you were looking from uh, a Google Earth view, they look like the letter H. And for that very fact, they look like an H, meant that it had a courtyard before you entered the front, uh, let's say, lobby area to where you went left or right. You went to a stairwell that brought you upstairs. So from the rig, just to the front door, it could be uh, two lengths of hose. And then you go into the fifth floor. It's a, a length per you know floor. And then you need a length on the top floor, at least for the apartment. And by ourselves, we could make the top floor and put the fire on. You know, we were proud of that stretch and the fact that we could do that. Uh, but, but I like truck work. So I transferred out of the Bronx because I wanted to transfer into a tiller. There was only two tillers in the Bronx, and that was 59 truck. They were busy and 39 truck, and they were a bedroom community, and they weren't as busy. So I looked at a truck in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, 108 truck, and that's where I chose to go because it was a tiller. And it was the best move I ever made in my career. Because they shaped my career and you had to answer to the men. You didn't have to answer to the boss. Of course, you know, there's the captain, there's the lieutenants. But if if you didn't meet the standards of the company, you weren't going to last very long. And when I got there, it was almost like I was taken into a company of athletes. And I wasn't as good as them. Of course I wasn't. I didn't have the experience that these guys had. And I wanted to learn everything I could from them. And they set the tone. They set the example. It was, for them, professionalism. And you know what? It, that shaped my attitude for the rest of my career. Because wherever I went past that, and I got promoted out of there, uh, you know, to lieutenant, then uh, being promoted to cap, wherever I went, you know what? I would look at the firefighters wherever I worked engage them against a 108 truck. And if they didn't meet those standards, then they had a problem with me. But yet I realized if they needed help, it was my responsibility to give it to them because it was given to me. They took the time to teach me forcible entry because I wasn't one of the monsters in the company to say the guys I worked with were monsters. They could take a door with their hip. I had to learn how to use the tools. I had to learn the finesse of the tools. And with that, it allowed me to then go on and teach other firefighters, you know, and uh, teach young firefighters. Uh, later in my career, I was, uh, uh, I worked in Midtown for a truck. Uh, I went to, the, to Brooklyn for three years, bounced, came back to Manhattan and I was privileged to be the captain of Ladder 3-5, Tower Ladder 35, around the corner from Lincoln Center. And it would be that a former union president, a firefighters union president, Jimmy Boyle was his name. Uh, he was working at uh, John Jay College, which really was uh, about four or five blocks away from my firehouse, 35 truck. Uh, and Jimmy Boyle was running what was the cadet program for the FDNY. Uh, you would be a cadet 
you would learn EMS, you would learn different things about the job. And it would also help uh, if you as a cadet wanted to take the entrance exam for FDNY. They would really prepare you for that. And Jimmy, his son, was a cadet. Uh, and his son's best friend that they grew up together, David Arce, was also a cadet. And then when uh, Michael, his son Michael, was hired, he was assigned, and also David uh, Arce, the, the two boys, they grew up together. They were both hired together. They were both assigned to the same engine company, uh, downtown Manhattan, 33 engine on Great Jones Street. Uh, and that firehouse, it used to be, the chief of the department actually used to live there. There was an apartment in it. That's how old this firehouse is. We're saying chief of the department, you know, during the 1800s, but in any event. Uh, it would be that era that Michael and uh, David, when they were hired, it was a period where probationary firefighters would spend a year in their original house, a year, and they would rotate for three years. So it came Michael's first rotation, and guess where he came? The 35 truck. And I didn't have anything to do with that. And I would find that years later, Jimmy Boyle had him sent there. And his first day... Uh, working with me anyway. It was a day tour. Uh, so right after roll call, uh, I give him the irons. You know, the, you get the can, the irons, OV, outside vent, roof man, or you're the chauffeur. Well, I gave him the irons. This is his first day in the truck company. I don't even know if he knows how to force it, though. But I gave him the irons, and right after roll call, we stepped aside, and we held a forcible entry drill. In with opening doors, out with opening drawers. An hour later, we'd go out the door. We'd, we'd be uh, third due to a job. He's got to force the door. It's an outward opening door. He forces it. And what's behind it? A block wall. <laughs> His first door was a wall. But I mean, but he accomplished the task. Uh, and then he would spend a year with me. And he would rotate on. And David Arce came right behind him. And he spent the year with me as well. So what a compliment that was for Jimmy Boyle to think that these two young men that are near and dear to him, one is his son, his son's best friend, that he would send them to me. You know, uh, I found that uh, to be one of the highest compliments I could get on the job. You know, so, so to say, you know, firefighters that get killed, granted, buildings, they fail, they collapse sometimes. We have no idea what the pre-burn time is. We have no idea what uh, faults, structural faults, may be lying in wait. You know, there was a, a, a young firefighter in Brooklyn. His name was uh, Kevin Kane. His father was a chief uh, who had been retired. But Kevin, uh, he was from a truck company, downtown Brooklyn. They were relocated into East New York, uh, another east of Brooklyn, busy neighborhood, they catch a job. He's searching an adjoining apartment from the fire apartment. And it's an ordinary construction. Uh, fire's in the cockloft. So it's above his head. He's in the adjoining apartment. And there was a fault in that the roof joist, if you will, holding up the ceiling or the ceiling joists, they were not complete uh, two by sixes. They weren't complete from bearing wall to bearing wall. They put it... They abutted two together and they put, let's say, a, a, a piece of wood as a scab or as a gang nail right in the middle of the room. 
And that's what failed. The ceiling came down, and this young man was engulfed in fire. He was at a window. They raised the towel out of bucket to him. Um, but by the time they did, you know, this poor young man, he only lasted hours after that. So, I mean, yes, there could be structural faults uh, that, you know, we have no control over. But if you look at all the NIOSH reports, and, and I believe also it was also mentioned that NIOSH reports now are a little bit different than they were 10 years ago. And, and what I mean by that, to be specific, the reports today are actually touching upon and talking about fire dynamics. And when I, to be specific about that, 10 years ago, they didn't discuss fire dynamics. They took a look at policies, procedures, you know, time, uh, when the firefighters showed up, uh, the job, the mission they were conducting. But today, we should actually take a look at, okay, when we showed up at any given building, it could be, uh, it could be a, a strip mall, it could be a private dwelling, it could be a high-rise building uh, that uh, it's residential, so we're down in a public hallway, or it's a high-rise office building that once we open the door, we're entering the occupancy. We could start from, okay, when you arrived, what did you see? You know, was anything showing? And there's some chiefs that even have an issue with that. I don't want to hear nothing showing on a radio because uh, the units are going to slow down. Hey, chief, guess what? That's a training issue. I want to know that snapshot, that point in time, that nothing's showing. Because you should also realize from the UL studies, when a fire in a private dwelling goes into ventilation controlled, nothing's going to be showing, and you got a fire in that building. Nothing's showing, chief. I want to know that in point in time. And if your policy in your department is, we'll slow down, turn the sirens off, shame on you. Every time we go out the door, it's legitimate. So when you get off the rig and you open up the door to the private dwelling, to the store, to the floor on fire, did the fire dynamics change? And if they did, how and what did you observe? I mean, we could be in a high-rise building and it's an office building so that as soon as I open up the stairwell door, I'm entering the occupancy that a fire could be in there somewhere. It could be in my face or it could be deep into the space. But when I opened the door, did you notice anything? Did smoke come out? And if it came out, did it come out high? Did you happen to know what went in low? Meaning that's a bi-directional flow. Something's coming out, something's going in. Or when you look at a window and fire's coming out the entire square of that window, that's a unidirectional flow. That could tell you that maybe there's another window on the opposite side of the fire open and it's blowing out this way. You know, in other words, reading smoke and reading buildings and all of that thing, all of those things, we should understand what it's telling us. You know, uh, Dave Dotson and turbulent smoke and all of these things. Okay, is it about to light up? Is it about to flash? In other words, we need to, and that's what Dotson was giving uh, students attending his class, and it became very popular. I believe Phil Jost from uh, Seattle has now picked up on that, and he's uh, delivering that uh, around, uh, around the United States, if not at FDIC. All of that's good stuff because the more you see it, you're logging it into recognition prime decision making. Here's your 35 millimeter slide tray up here. 
And when you show up to a fire, that slide tray is spinning and it's going to stop on, whoa, that looks familiar. And you'll, you'll make a decision. I, th- I even think that uh, Tibbet talked about crew resource management when they were talking about, you know, the things that they want to develop in the Fallen Firefighters Foundation. Crew resource management, well, it, ha- it has to deal with preparing your mind so you can make decisions in a millisecond at times. Uh, it can't just be a knee-jerk reaction and hope that the reaction is going to be the best one that you can make. It's it's better if it's an educated uh, guess and reaction, things like that. So that was a couple of things that I picked up on uh, some prior broadcasts. Uh, you know, I want to look at how we failed uh, firefighters. You know, it could be that people talk about, I teach. I, I go out and I teach. I teach. No, you don't teach. You're actually sharing something. Uh, I, and we could say, well, I could teach you something, but I can't understand it for you. And that's what I was talking about with Trevor earlier. I mean, out at the academy, you know, even FDNY, you get a classroom of 30 firefighters, 10 of them are not paying attention. They're looking at their their watch. When are we getting out of here? So it's like I could teach you, but I can't understand it for you. And those people we may never help. But yet I'll back up for a second. I also at times – if I want to touch upon, uh, you know, leadership or something like that, I have a photo that I took of a firefighter in in one of my houses in the 4-9 Battalion. In the 4-9, I had uh, nine companies, uh, three trucks, six engines, uh, and I walked in a kitchen, and I, it wasn't that I had my phone. I had a camera uh, with me all the time. I used to carry it in my... Uh, my turnout call uh, was waterproof. And by the time I thought about taking the pictures, you know, it was uh, the exciting moments were over because you're in the heat of battle. But in any event, I'm walking in the kitchen and this firefighter is on the couch. He's asleep. He's got the TV remote on his belly and his belly is up to here because this guy should have been uh, put on light duty five years ago because he's been skating the medical office uh, being obese for years, and we've been covering for him. And his attitude in in the firehouse is horrendous. He bitches, he moans, he's this, he's that. But we could have a drill in the kitchen, and he could be sitting on the side, and he doesn't even look like he's engaged or interested. But guess what? He's listening. And you know why he's listening? Because someday that fat bastard is going to be in the kitchen with two young firefighters that are going to be detailed in from some other house, and he's going to start spouting off something that he heard uh, to put himself across like, hey, uh, this is the stuff that I know, because he's full of shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So even the fat bastard will get something out of a drill, even if he's not engaged. I had, I had started a program in the 4-9, and I called it the Firefighter Mentorship Program. Because, I mean, there was uh, mentorship programs for uh, chief officers, you know, captains, going to be chiefs. Uh, and some departments would have, uh, you know, first-line officers, some sort of a mentorship program. But you very rarely hear anything for firefighters. So what I thought I'd make up and how I, how I presented it 
I uh, took, let's say, a Word document. Uh, you know, this is on the computer because finally FDNY got computers. Uh, we had onion skins. We had uh, carbon paper for so many years. Uh, and then during the Giuliani administration, and he brought in uh, a, a fire commissioner, Howard Safer, and then Howard would go on and become uh, the police commissioner. But Giuliani and Safer really knew each other from back in the days of being uh, uh, federal uh, prosecutors and things like that. But for the very fact that uh, Howard became uh, our commissioner, he said to Rudy, you know, these guys are still using carbon paper. So we all got computers. So in a Word document, I could insert, let's say, a graphic or a photo. And then that graphic or a photo would become a metaphor. And I'll just throw this out. It would be the front of a tenement with fire escapes and uh, five or four or five firefighters on one landing of a fire escape on the front of a tenement uh, with a hose line that they're stretching to the next floor. And basically the question would be, what's wrong with this picture? So if you think about it, that fire escape is probably, uh, the building was built turn of the century, 1905, 1910. That fire escape has been hanging off the side of that building since 1910. Okay. Uh, even if the landlord has been painting this thing, do they get paint in between, you know, where it's riveted and things like, like that or where it's tied into the building? How? So we're talking about the connection points. And would you say that the weight of four firefighters might be excessive for one landing? Was a fat guy on the crew? Well, that fat bastard wouldn't even get off the rig. Uh <laughs> We couldn't get him. On, uh, you're right, but that's a good point. <laughs> if you think about it, each firefighter with his with his gear and his scot pack and this and that, you're well over 200 pounds. Uh, so you're talking 400 pounds on uh, a landing that you're increasing the eccentric load of this entire fire escape. So that's the point being made. Like, what's wrong with this picture? And, of course, uh, I probably came up with maybe a, a hundred different scenarios and basically, it would be the metaphor. I would number them, the question. And then it was all blank lines. And I would send four different ones out to all my houses for the week. And how it was supposed to play out, if you will, the officer on duty was to grab one from the office, go down, hold your roll call, give out your assignments, tell them what the, the plan for the day was, and just hand the firefighters the question for the day. And those firefighters were supposed to by themselves. Now it's a day tour. You got nine hours or if it's a night tour, you got 15 hours. Sit down, just the firefighters and do this by yourself. The officer shouldn't be sitting there with you. And by the way, this is not the officer's drill. Whatever drill he's going to hold in the tour, that's separate from this. And the firefighter should sit down. So that would be the senior man all the way to the probie sit down and all right, let's come up with some answers for this. And, of course, at the end of the tour, those firefighters give it back to the officer. He was supposed to sign it, date it, and send it back to me. Now, when I, when I get it back, I look at the signature, and I look at the writing, and if it's the same writing, don't jerk me off. <laughs> you know what? I didn't fall off the back of a turnout uh, truck, so I, <laughs> I the officer filled it out. I want to see different handwritings and things like that. And then I would take the collective answers from all the houses 
And if there was anything missing, I would add to that. I would take all the collective answers and I would send that same metaphor, that same photo back out to them with all the collective answers from the firefighters and add some that maybe should be there. They wouldn't know if I added anything or not. And the firefighters would get to see it and read it a second time to reinforce because now they're getting to see, oh, wow, these other guys, they, you know, oh, yeah, we didn't think of that. So it became a way that the answers coming back to me, it gave me a gauge of what they knew and what they didn't know. And whatever they didn't know, that's something that I had to work on. Or I had to work it out with the officers of that company. Because if they were weak in a certain area, it was our, our responsibility to build them up and teach them. So it gave me a gauge on, again, knowing what they knew and what they didn't know on different things. And the questions were all over the place. You know, they would be tactical. They would be uh, water, engine, truck, uh, ventilation, even deportment, by the way. You know, uh, how about a, a guy in a uh, St. Patrick's Day parade? He's wearing $300 sunglasses. He's got no hat, no tie. He's in uniform, marching down the parade with a green tattoo on his cheek. You think that's how you want to represent the New York City Fire Department? I don't think so. So I would even ask questions like that. You know, when you wear that uniform, you represent firefighters from before 1865, before the department was formed. And all of those firefighters that sacrificed their injuries and became maimed and or were killed in the line of duty and their spouses and families that sacrificed. That's what you represent when you put that uniform on. And, you know, we got to remember that. And as I said, it's the other firefighters in the company that you have to live up to these standards. Cause if you don't, guess what? You're out of here, pal. You're not, you're not going to be part of this company because this is what we represent and you're not, you're not making them up. Just my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jerry, I mean, it's, we listen to you uh, talk about this stuff all night and you're absolutely right. We, we've had these conversations. I know Bobby and Ben and Ben, uh, welcome. I know, I hope your crochet club went well tonight. I know you're a little bit late from that, but you know, hope everything went great on that. Um, but yeah, we talk a lot about you know, all around or 360 degree leadership. And you know, when you show a flow chart, you have a big box at the top. Everybody knows who that is and everybody knows who the next box is down and next box is down in descending order. But all those little boxes that go across the bottom, that's the boots on the ground. That's the wisdom in the trenches. And, you know, I, I know I, I give this compliment to Bobby quite a bit is, you know, he'll, he'll be the guy out there when he's got the guy who his impression in the fire service is leaving his ass dent in the recliner. That's the only impression he ever makes. But Bobby will be out there throwing ladders and pulling lines, just the, just the basics. And not that Bobby hasn't done it a million times, not that Ben hasn't done it a million times, but it's that million and first time. And uh, Bobby, just kind of you know, feed off of uh, some of the analogies you've made before. Yeah, Bobby will talk a lot about uh, you know when you watch football and you watch a play on Sunday, and that play has probably been run at least 50 to 100 times that past week. They watch game film, what we do right, what we do wrong, what can we do better. They, they did a dry run. They went through a lot of things on that, no pads drill, pads drill, and you know, until the point that they didn't practice until they got it right, they practiced until they couldn't get it wrong. 
And uh, Bobby, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but um, I think this would be appropriate, uh, especially with the weekend coming up. Would you mind, uh, real quick, giving your analogy that you've talked to people? And I, I had this, um, how can I say, spirited discussion uh, in a Chiefs group the other day that I didn't really, uh, I think it was a little bit misguided part of the conversation. But um, I threw some Bobby McGee at him with uh, Steel Team 6 and your analogy there. So, Bobby, you mind uh, laying it on us just so people can hear it again and um, you know, just talk about the reps and sets and why it's important to do what we do? Yeah, um, I think people get hung up in the fire service um, by, you know, call volume um, and amount of fires they go to. And there's an article this month in fire engineering from, um, gosh, I can't remember who wrote it now. Jeff Shoup, I think. I'm not sure. Anyways. Oh, super guy. Oh, he, start, he starts right off and he talks about a new officer can't get experience on the job because it's too costly to the community. In other words, by the time an officer becomes proficient, if he's becoming proficient by going to fires, you burn a lot of stuff down for the officer to be good. And, you know, when we look at SEAL Team 6, um, they look at it in the opposite way of the fire service. Uh, they didn't have to kill a thousand Osama bin Ladens. Uh, what they did was they trained and they practiced and they trained and they practiced. And when they found out the, 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 the possible layout of the building, they trained and practiced on a building like that. They trained for things happening. They trained for if this guy got killed, what they were going to do. Hell, they wrecked a friggin' helicopter and still got the son of a bitch. Exactly. So, you know, uh, that's not because they ran a thousand fires and they put that fire out. It's because they prepared and they got ready and they prepared and they got ready. And, um, you know, that's to me, that's how, you know, the fire, the fire service should be. I think that you, you prepare and you get ready. And obviously... Um, if you're in uh, Ocean City, Maryland, we're not going to prepare a whole lot for a subway car rescue. But if you're an FDNY and you're at a major hub in a subway thing, you're probably going to do a lot of training on what you're going to do uh, when that happens. And, and if you're in a rural area, you probably think about, you know, a farm machinery rescue or something like that. So but the, the point is, is that you do have to prioritize your training, but um, going to calls in people's places with people's lives in danger to learn is a very bad place to learn. And that's, you know, and, I, and I'm sure Jerry can talk about this a little bit more, but when you're an officer, there's a point in time where you have to take it over. If the guy doesn't know how to force the door and you need the door open, you may just have to say, Hey brother, give me the irons. And then afterwards you go back and train again, you know, and that's, that's kind of it, but you never want to be in that position. That's not where you want to be. I always said, if you, if you have a great crew, you don't need an officer. I mean, honestly, you have a really good crew. You don't need an officer, but it's always nice to have an officer because what he's doing is watching your back. He's watching different things. He's looking at a bigger picture. He's looking around. He knows that guy can stretch the line to the fire. He knows a backup line. The guy's going to get him the line to the fire. He's looking around. Is there a weak ceiling somewhere? Is there a weird doors or something there? So um, I think that it's um, – I think it's for us, especially in our slower parts of the country, where we don't run as much of a fire volume as the urban departments do. It's even more important for us to train. And I find it as an excuse not to train in rural departments um, where we don't see that much fire load anyway. Well, that's more reason to train because you know what? When there's a fire in your community, every single community has an eight-year-old in flannel pajamas. There's not a fire department out here that doesn't. Okay. And when their place is on fire, you're the one they're calling and you're the only one that can help them out. 
And it doesn't matter if your department mm-hmm. goes to 50 calls a year or it's a department that goes to a, a million calls a year. Those the kid in flannel pajamas expecting you to know how to do your job. And I think that's a good expectation. So I, I think it's it's it's, you know, it's about the training and the reps and things. And Jerry, I, I got a question for you. You know, I think you know, when I look at the, um, you know, the numbers, when I'm talking about numbers, I'm really what I'm talking about is really that, that if you look at the raw data, um, you know, I just did numbers the other day. I, Trevor knows I, I beat numbers up terrible. But, you know, if you look at the same amount of structure fires in the country and the fatalities, in reality, only about one in every 180 fires, working fires, do we have a fatality. So what happens in, in, in less busy departments is they may take a long time to run 180 calls. So they become very what I call engine eccentric in this part of the country, because that's normally what makes takes care of the problem is the engine company going in and putting it out. But that 180th fire, when they go there, if they're not ready, you know, and, and Trevor, you know, I've said this before. If um, if you all of a sudden hear that somebody's trapped and your entire operation changes, you were doing it wrong to begin with. Amen. I like you. I like what you said. Absolutely. You're 100 percent correct. So, so the one, what I want to ask you about, Jerry, was, you know, I, I think, you know, why I don't like these conversations about the go or no go or the, the, the commitment inside the fire grounds and things is I think that even in the basic training in the Firefighter One programs, we put a lot of doubt in young guys' minds and young girls' minds about when you should or when you shouldn't go. And I think the trust has to go a long way. And, and, I, and so if you want to talk about your Brooklyn experience, you know, when you work on a truck company, Part of that truck company, I would imagine, is because you had a trust in the engine company. You didn't have to worry about what they were doing. <laughs> exactly. So talk, talk a little about those team dynamics with us, if you would, just what you experienced there in New York. But And I will. Uh, but before you go there, or we go there, if you think about, you know, departments and small communities and this and that, these are communities in many cases that you live in. So you're really responding, you know, the very neighborhood I live in here on Long Island, it's protected by a volunteer uh, department. And you could be showing up to somebody that you know. You're showing up to car accidents. And, you know, the fatalities you're looking at, you know these people. Uh, that's got to be really difficult, very difficult. Um, and I like what you said. Uh, if, if somebody's trapped and all of a sudden you've got to change direction or whatever, you probably weren't doing it right to begin with. And I, I like to use the term, it's about disciplines. What are the disciplines that you adhere to in your function and purpose going out the door? Uh, when I got to 108 truck, uh, when we were going out the door, I mean, when I was leaving my house, driving to work, I knew I'd be going to a fire. In my on my shift, so when we were on the rig and we didn't have uh, bunker gear, uh, what we wearing our masks? You know, this was a <laughs> it was a change in culture. At one time, the mask was in a box and it was in a compartment on the side of the rig. They weren't part of the seat, uh, so we weren't wearing masks, but we were wearing our gear. Uh, did we always pull up uh, the boots three quarter? In the engine, we would. In the truck, probably not. And to tell you the truth, if we were in outside position, uh, the outside vent or roof, we were probably wearing work shoes. We weren't even wearing uh, the three-quarter boots. 
uh, you know, to perform the outside vent or go to the roof. Uh, and in some cases, those firefighters going to the roof weren't even wearing uh, the three-quarter uh, fire jacket, if you will. They were wearing a dungaree jacket. Um, but yet, we were ready to go to work. Gloves, the job didn't even issue gloves at the time. We were flagging down or stopping at utility vans. Uh, Con Edison is an electric utility here in New York City. We would stop at a Con Ed van. Hey, guys, you got any gloves? And they would give us gloves. Uh, you know, they were leather and canvas gloves. That was the gloves that we were wearing. But we knew enough to wear them. Um, but we were ready to go to work. Let's put it that way. I mean, even when I got promoted, I go to Midtown, and now I'm in Fort Truck in the heart of Times Square, the theater district. Um, and this was a whole different, if you want to call it arena, for me, the only high-rise uh, firefighting that I had, let's say, responded to, uh, high-rise fires, were residential, and some of them were in, uh, let's say, if you want to call them the projects, you know, uh, city housing. Uh, there was some um, more, I wouldn't call it high-end, but some uh, more expensive uh, high-rise, really very close to the firehouse, uh, the Lindsay Park Apartments. And to tell you the truth, we didn't have very many fires there. I wasn't working for the one wind-driven fire that uh, 108 responded to first do. Uh, when they were at, let's say, it was a center hall, uh, scissor stairs put you on the floor, and the scissor stairs were, of course, uh, near the center core, near the elevators. And the scissor stairs would be behind the elevator, so that when you came out onto the floor, you were either left of the elevators or right, of the elevators and that whatever stairwell, it would be the opposite on each floor. They just crisscross back and forth. When they got to the fire floor, the apartment door was open, the windows had failed and they were looking at it and it was the end apartment all the way down the hall. They were looking at a blue flame coming out of that apartment impinging on the apartment door across from the fire apartment. And one of the brothers, had borrowed a Garrity light from my helmet, and he put it on his helmet, if you remember the old Garrity lights. When he brought it back after the job came back, that Garrity light melted and was just a piece of plastic that melted down the side of his helmet. He said, hey, thanks a lot. You know, uh, But that's how hot it was in the hallway. Nobody was making that hallway. And the only fatality, the fire department had nobody in it, the only fatality was a person in the bedroom of the apartment across the hall that the flame was impinging on their door and the heat and smoke was being blown into their apartment. That was our only fatality. And to tell you the truth, we didn't really sit down to discuss what we could do about that other than two firefighters. And one of them was Kevin Shea. And if you have heard the name, he was the one that did that uh, high-rise rescue in Times Square with Rescue One. Well, Kevin Shea was a fireman in 108. And he's sitting in the kitchen of 108 with Mike Higgins, another outstanding firefighter. The two of them are talking about using a curtain or some sort of a, a blanket to put over a window. And you'll never guess who the covering officer for the day was sitting in that kitchen. John Knoll. John Norman is sitting in the kitchen of 108 listening to these two firefighters talking about 
gee, if, if we had, you know, that, uh, that foil blanket that they put around the, uh, the bucket of uh, the towel on us, if we could put that over a window, uh, or why don't we go around the corner? Because 108 truck and 216 engine, our firehouse was built attached and part of uh, a New York City police uh, precinct, the 9-0. And on the side of the 9-0 precinct was emergency truck two. It was ESU. And they didn't talk to us. Of course, we didn't talk to them. But both Kevin and Mike Higgins went around the corner, knocked on their door, and, and started a conversation with them. Hey, you guys got a Kevlar blanket. You got this. You got that. We're thinking about and And the cops really blew them off. You know, like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Take, take a walk. So they really didn't even entertain anything we were talking about. Today, I could honestly tell you the relationship between the New York City Police Department and the New York City Fire Department couldn't be. It's the best it ever was. We're, we're brothers in battle and there's solidarity there. We understand their challenge. They understand our challenge. If we could ha have their back, we will. And they'll do the same for us. Uh, but there was a time it wasn't like that. So when John Norman, years later, would uh, entertain, let's say, a vendor to come up with a, and, and it was a, a blanket, if you will, a very large blanket to drop over a window, Really, that's where he got the, the seed was planted in the kitchen of a 108 truck. But yet, when I got involved in, let's say, the study of fire dynamics in residential uh, apartment fires, high-rise building fires that would turn into wind-driven events, we looked at a smaller curtain, and we call it the KO curtain. And it was also uh, designed, if you will, by a lieutenant and a ladder company out in Rockaway, Queens. Uh, Oswald was his name. And that curtain is issued to every truck company on the job. And if you get a fire and a high-rise multiple dwelling, and you're going to the floor above, that curtain's with you. And you could pre-deploy it or deploy it after the windows have failed. Pre-deploy it. If there's the presence of wind and the brothers are going to move in on that fire, and you want to pre-deploy it just in case the windows fail. In other words, we've learned something. You know, we've lost firefighters at Vandalia, three firefighters in the hallway of a wind-driven fire. And their funerals, it wasn't a closed casket. They weren't burnt to death. They were just, their bodies were overwhelmed by the heat in the hallway that was being generated by a wind-driven fire in a sparsely furnished apartment. Doesn't take much fuel, but if you stoke it with oxygen, it could be fatal. So, you know, let's put it this way and sharing things and, and yourself going out and teaching. You couldn't live long enough to make every mistake that could be made in life. So learn from other people's mistakes and lessons learned. That's the way to do it. And Jerry, to that end, um, and I know you, you and I were talking prior to the broadcast um, many moons ago, you had come down to ocean city and done some training with us. And I believe we we're doing some uh, high rise training in one of the parking garages. We had built some walls and, you know, since then some other names you had mentioned, you know, Bobby Pressler, Ray McCormick, some of those guys have come down as well and to share some knowledge with us. And yeah, I just remember from all those years ago talking about, uh, you know, people would be enamored and Bobby, you've mentioned this as well a little bit 
with much busier departments having the sets and reps. And I just remember, um, Jerry, you had echoed something that uh, actually a battalion chief that I knew from Baltimore City had said the almost identical thing is that we're only as good as our last call. And just because you're running a lot of calls doesn't mean you're running a lot of calls correctly. And eventually it's going to catch up to you. And uh, the caveat that the uh, BC from uh, Baltimore, who actually his son's on the job up there in uh, FDMY still, uh, he, had, he said, look, if we screw up something at eight o'clock in the morning, probably by the end of the tour, we're going to run a similar enough call that we can redeem ourselves and apply what we learned. You guys might not have that same call until the next tour, the next week, the next month. And small departments, rural departments might be a year or two down the road. So how do you take the lessons learned from that last incident and put them into practice? So the advantage that busier department has is they're going to have an opportunity to have redemption and reapply those lessons much sooner than some of the other folks. And, you know, that was just really, I, I think, a very you know, a unique perspective to say we need to look at the way we train. We need to make sure that we're putting in the sets and reps and why we're doing it. Um, and circling again back to what Bobby had said, we don't we might not have that fire duty. We might not have that. Uh, what they consider a low frequency, high impact event. No, we, yeah, we train for the MCI. We train for the plane crash, the school bus uh, accident. We don't have that every shift, but uh, just like we talk to our folks, if, if you respond to an automatic fire alarm, I want you to be surprised that the building's not on fire, not get there and go, oh shit. And I've, uh, I think this goes back to uh, Chief Tracy, what you were talking about. And I, remember, I remember Andy Frederick saying this many, many years ago, about the garbage man coming around the corner. He sees a dumpster full of trash. He doesn't freak the hell out and go, holy crap, there's a dumpster full of trash. He goes, okay, yeah, I call that Tuesday. I'm a trash man. There's a, gar- a garbage can full of trash. You're, I'm a fireman. There's a building full of fire. That's what we do. So you're getting in that mindset that every call is a drill, even if it's a quote-unquote routine emergency, how we position is important, how we set up is important, how we deploy with our tools is important. Um, the lessons learned from inside the building, be nosy. Uh, you look around a little bit, even on an EMS call. Yeah, we're going to do our patient care. I'm not taking anything away from that. But go, wow, if I have to come back here at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's going to be a problem at the end of this hallway. So to me, every call is an opportunity to perfect the trade. Yeah, and my memory, uh, it's bad, if you will. There was, a, and it might be Nashville, it was a, a fatal fire, uh, a lieutenant, and a probie, uh, and it was uh, they took the elevator to the fire floor. Uh, it was an automatic alarm, and they had claimed that uh, they were there uh, maybe half a dozen times or a little bit more in a month. Um, something Towers was the name of uh, the Memphis. Yeah, yes. it, was, it was Memphis, Bobby. I think it was Tennessee, but I believe it was Memphis. I'm, I know the one you're talking about, Chief. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I have a copy of um, the chief of the department being interviewed after that uh, fatality. And he's sharing, and he's getting emotional. And I tell you what, uh, I can feel it. I know what he's going through. Uh but yet, and you're talking about, you know, every run is legitimate. I worked in, uh, as, as you heard, four truck in Midtown. Do you know how many nuisance alarms? We, okay. How many alarms we responded to per year were six to 7,000 runs a year? Just that company. 
So how many of them were nuisance calls? More than half. And uh, can I be honest with you to say that there were some companies on the job that when they went out the door and they pulled up in front of one of these buildings, the turnout coat would be over in the arm, they'd get off the rig, and they'd walk in, hey, what do we got? Well, uh, when I was in Fort Truck, and certainly the other officers, uh, and I went through about four different captains uh, and the, a change of lieutenants, if you will. And one of those lieutenants was Terry Hatton, and you may have heard that name. Uh, Terry Hatton would go on to become the captain of Rescue One. Uh, but we were disciplined in that every time we went out the door, we were suited up. And as a matter of fact, even before the job uh, started purchasing uh, hoods uh, and things like that, Terry Hatton, uh, because he came out of rescue too as a firefighter, he was already wearing hoods and he purchased them for the rest of the officers and then some of the firefighters. In other words, we purchased them on our own. And don't you know, some of the neighboring companies would throw out comments like, here they come, the boys in the hood, you know, because we were wearing hoods. But, you know, of course, we were wearing them for a reason. We weren't showing off or we thought we were better than anybody else. If we were going to go deep, <laughs> it helped. Let's put it that way. But we were professional. And every time... Even if I was going back to the same building for the fourth time in the same tour, every time I walked in, it was a professional conversation with the responsible person. It's a professional conversation because the world is watching. Even in a hotel, you know, I'm attending a conference and I won't even mention the city. It wasn't FDIC, but it's another city on the East Coast. And it's a conference. And it's, let's say eight o'clock at night in the lobby of the hotel. How many people do you think are standing around in the lobby of that hotel with blue T-shirts on and Maltese crosses on? The, the lobby's loaded with them. Okay. So now all of a sudden my wife and I were upstairs. You hear an alarm going off in the building. We're on the third floor and really outside our window is a setback and it's a roof. So if I, if I had to, I could really break the window and we're out on a setback. And it's a recorded alarm and it's telling us to evacuate. My wife is hounding me. We've got to get out of the room. And I'm saying, honey, we, we don't have to go anywhere. Uh, blah, blah, blah. She haunted me to death. So we leave. We go down the stairs and it puts us out on, let's say, exposure two of the building. And I says, well, let's go outside. And the reason I walked outside is I want to see how many rigs or what rigs are out? Who responded to this box? There's an engine in a truck and there's no chief. Okay. And that's, I walk out on exposure too. We go to the front of the building. We come back into the lobby. The firefighters that responded. And the reason they're there is probably some firefighter uh, that's attending the conference, got his major load on, came back to the hotel goes up into the stairwell and opens up one of the standpipe outlets and there's a flow of water into the stairwell. Who else would do that but a drunken firefighter? Somebody who's unprofessional. He's got his major load on. Okay. But in the lobby to say, now I'm looking around for the 
on duty firefighters. The only way I could tell that a firefighter was on duty because he's wearing a baseball hat, he's got a blue T-shirt with a Maltese cross, he's got a radio over his arm. You know, that's the only way I could tell, oh, he must be on duty. So that's how they came into the building. And I tell you what, that's a disgrace. That's not how we respond. That's not how we want the public to see us because we are professionals in every aspect. And on every, every run, and then the interaction we have with the responsible person at the hotel, whether it be a high-rise building, a fire safety director, guess what? That's also professional. Because come day of the fire, we want that conversation to be that professional as well. I've been to high-rise drills in high-rise buildings where the drill went fine. Hey, this was great. We learned things. But in real life, come the day to fire, that same fire safety director, he's speaking in tongues because he's so nervous he doesn't know what to say. But he's already, he's been part of a drill. But if you do this the same every time as professional, just like you said, set, sets and reps. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, if you're a firefighter and you're uncomfortable wearing your gear and an automatic fire alarm, how do you think it's going to be comfortable when it's on fire? Transfer out of your gear when it's on. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be even more miserable when the building on fire. Yeah. And Trevor, Trevor and I have seen it where, you know, they don't, they, they, they don't do it. And so now when they have to put their mask on, it takes them two or three minutes to get their mask on. Oh, I forgot my hood. I forgot it. Because da, 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 they're not doing their sets and wraps. Right. You know, if, you, if you only right. put your stuff on, at least wherever I've worked at, if you only put your stuff on when it's on fire, you don't put your stuff on very often. Where's my gloves? You throw your gear on the rig and you didn't even check your gloves because some other asshole barred them last night and didn't give them back. You know, it's all kinds of things. And, and Bobby, you know, that drives me just batshit crazy anyway. Because, you know, like I say, when you get there, be ready to go to work. I don't care if it's food on the stove, an automatic fire alarm, or the towering inferno. Be ready to go to work each and every time. And guess what? I'm down here in South Florida now, and it gets freaking ball sweat hot down here. Trust me. Um, now, we don't have ice. We don't have cold. That's nice. But at the same time, you know, when, when you show up to that call, guess what? We're going to sweat it out, guys. We're going to do this. And I'm very proud of the folks that I work with because it, it doesn't matter what the uh, scenario is. And you know, I brag on them a lot. You know, I catch my firefighters doing the right thing a lot. And that, you know, I, I love that where I can look and go, you know, these guys had, even if it's a weekend where uh, you know, I might not be on duty. Yeah, Bobby, I'm sorry. I work. You know, I'm a day work guy anymore. But, um, you know, my wife and I were having breakfast about a month ago. Yeah, I hear you. And you know, I'm sitting there. It's not because of a directive, an edict or anything else. But my guys are sitting there at uh, not sitting, but. Yeah, here, here it is, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. They're out doing their shift drill, and it is freaking hot. It is just a nasty, sticky, you know, these guys are doing it. They're out there in full gear. They're, they're, they're putting in the sets and reps. That wasn't that wasn't an edict. That wasn't a uh, directive that came out. They did because that's what they want to do. And so when you catch your firefighters doing the right thing, and it's contagious. It spreads. It's a, it's a beautiful thing because they want to be good on that next call. And, Bobby, I, I forget where we were. Um it was one of the places we had an opportunity to, to go and share some information and uh, some some class somewhere that uh, they'd asked us to come out for. 
where where was that guy from? I think that, uh, their department had run like one structure fire in 30 years. Awesome. I mean, do you mind just telling that real quick? I thought that was so impressive. Yeah, Wichita, Kansas, we were at. And um, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Jerry. Um, the uh, the guy was in our class, and he was paying attention. He was one of them guys you knew was just locked and riveted onto you the whole time. And he and he practiced everything, and he went through it. And it was really cool. It used to be a much smaller conference than it is now. So we'd all just go out to a pub afterwards and kind of talk. So the instructors would be out with his students and get these conversations. And this kid came up, and he's still asking questions. He's still drilling us about what about this and what about that. And um, I said, man, I said, you're really, man, you're really into this. You're really putting a lot of effort. This is really cool. And he says, I'm from this town called Longton, Kansas. And he says, I've been in the fire department for, what do you say, six years or eight years, whatever it was. He said, we've never been to an alarm at a building. It, if you look on the map, there's this Longton town and there's nothing but brush fire land all around them on this flat Kansas, you know. And he said, but if we ever have a fire in my town, I want to know what to do. Amen. And I had to give him a whole lot of props for that because he was, he was zeroed in on if they had that emergency in their town, he knew there was no other town near them and he was it. And he was going to be as best as he could be for that. And that, that, was that, that, guy, that guy is a fireman. I'll call him a fireman day in and day out. Trevor, where's your district in relation to the West Palm airport? East, West, North, South, um, I'm a little bit northeast. Um, actually, the, I'm in a very, very little place uh, called Palm Beach Shores, and we're the easternmost part of the state. Um, Palm Beach International Airport's probably 15, 20 minutes away. Uh, we're right across the intercoastal from West Palm and uh, Riviera Beach. So uh, nice little area, but it's what's kind of unique is uh, you know, we have major marinas. We have a port on the other side. We have high rises, and my entire fire district, Jerry, you believe this or not, I mean, coming from Ocean City, it's a different animal. My entire fire district is a half square mile, but we got a lot of crap that's in that half square mile. And, you know, um, we, we're engine centric, so we don't have we don't have special services. I mean, we have to rely a lot on mutual aid uh, for specific things. But um, I tell you, it's you know, the, the amount of stuff that the, the folks that I work with not only do, but can do is just amazing. Um I'll tell you a really quick story. We had a we had a jumper um, about a month ago off of one of the high rises, and the guy was entangled up in a pergola um, about a story and a half off the ground. And uh, you know, this guy's DOA, and you know, we we don't have a heavy rescue. We don't have a lot of stuff. You know, we have we have things on the engine, and you know, we we work with you know, basic hauling, uh, lowering devices, this, that, and the other, and. These guys, I mean, they were just, they were on it and they don't have calls like this very often, but they, they went start to finish, uh, extended operation to get this guy down. And it was so funny because of course, you know, they have the, uh, it, our, our station identifiers, 80, we're engine 80, fast 80, but, um, un- underneath, of course, one of the guys takes a picture and sends it to me and it says, uh, you know, heavy rescue 80 underneath after they got done. <laughs> Um, but you know they, they had they had that pride that they were able to do these things um, you know, as a as basic first in company and uh, Bobby you've heard me say this a million times and, you know, Jerry I'm sorry to have a squirrel moment and kind of go go down this rabbit hole but um, you know especially in in some of the medium to smaller sized departments um, you know Bobby heard me say this a million times that you know sometimes you need to be the best one line fire department that you can possibly be and that first line that first in engine company your positioning your size up you know how you get that first line in service what you're doing to protect the occupants of that building um that 
that's your bread and butter. And you know, if you do nothing else but become the best one-line fire department that you can be, the rest will start to fall in place uh, because you you have that focus of your initial operations that first that you know, that first do mindset. So, um, you know, right right wrong or indifferent, I think that that's you know, put some guys on a decent path. But uh, you know, I'd I'd love to hear some uh, some thought process on that. If there's anything we can do to improve on that on that mindset when we're trying to get that in these guys, just like the one you talked about out there in Kansas, Bobby. I mean, you know, we. We all have our bravado and, you know, we have our T-shirts. Like uh, Chief Tracy saying, you know, all of us have the closet full of blue shirts and the Maltese crosses and the I belong. Um, I, you know, and, of course, the people that drive me nuts with the shirts that say, you know, um, I walk where the devil dances, I fight with <laughs> blah, 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 whatever. But at the same time, you know, I look, I look at that young guy um, who is trying to serve his community and he's got the mindset he's a firefighter. He's a fireman, you know, and uh, that that's the, that's the kind of mindset we need from, you know, the most rural place in uh, in Kansas to the most, uh, you know, the busiest metropolitan department in our country. How many gallons in your booster tank? 750. Nice. And I'm sure uh, any like Kirk Eikenson, it's it, he may be saying it's people before water, but he's bringing water with him and he's got it in his booster. So, I mean, really the message there is what is going to be there to protect us? We'll make these moves when we can. But what is just as important as saving that life? And, and Chief, I agree with you. Um, one of our pre-show conversations that we had with Kurt, and maybe this will put a little bit more context into it. When I first started in Ocean City, and as a side note, I still have my three-quarter boots uh, sitting in my office, uh, just as a reminder to some of the newer kids uh, when they come in. They're like, "Hey, what what museum you get that out of?" I'm like, eh, "Shut up!" But anyway, moving forward, um, is we we would have some of our folks that were so ingrained in water supply that they wouldn't charge that first line until the hydrant was hooked up. So we'd have an incipient state fire. We'd have a mattress that we could have gone in, knocked down, done the primary and secondary search, and, and done well but they would they were so reluctant to pull the um the lever on that first hand line until they had water coming from the hydrant in so that mattress fire went from being a mattress to a room and contents to two rooms to three rooms and then they felt justified because now we got fire blowing out three windows uh, yeah i told you young man this this is going to get bad well no shit if you if you don't put water on a fire it's going to get bad we know this so that was a little bit of the pre-show conversation to say you know Use the resources that you have. If you if you got five hundred gallons, seven fifty, that's a lot of water that appropriately placed. You can you can do a lot of good, or at least hold something and get the people out of that private dwelling or that multiple dwelling. And you, whether or not you save the building, that's another story. But at least you can get that. You know, you can start to apply water very early on. So I think that was a little bit of the conversation um, pre-show, and I'll, I don't want to get too fired up about it because you know my blood pressure has actually gone down over in recent years. So I take medication for that. Uh, yeah. Trevor, I got a new one for you, man. So Talk to me. if you have one victim to rescue, the best thing to have is a really good truck company. Bravado's <laughs> engine company is if you got if you got multiple people to rescue, the best way to rescue them is a good engine company. Oh, amen. Because the truck has to have time to go. You know what I mean? They got to go from one victim to the next victim to the next victim. So the engine is is it, it, just as important in the rescue as the truck is because we don't know if there's more than one person in there. FDNY so, going to the floor above. Uh, you go to the floor above with the confidence that the engine's putting the fire out below you. 
and bravado from the engine is when we put our fires out, there's no puddles. And what does that tell you? It's the efficiency of water. You don't waste it. Uh, amen. So there was something else I was going to talk about. Uh, uh, <laughs> I lost it, whatever it was. So how important could it have been? Uh, At our age, it's very important. Ocean City. So your high-rise, do you have prevailing winds at times, different times of the year? All days of the year. There you go. So, I mean, at times you might come in from a balcony, right? Oh, I knew where I was going to come from. Uh, talking, a chief was showing me some videos, if you will, uh, that he was going to have an audience uh, of, uh, let's say, prospective uh, incident commanders. And he was showing them some uh, private dwellings where – the whole front, the exposure one, the side A, uh, whether it be a single story or a couple of stories involved in fire. And he was, uh, let's say, soliciting from, uh, let's say, the attendees, prospective chiefs or chiefs in training. Uh, would you select stretching a line to the rear and coming in from the seaside from the clean side? And I'm thinking to myself, the efficiency of water. Were you kidding me? You could knock down the whole front of that building with a, with a quick hand line and go in the front door like we normally do. Why would you even be talking about going to the, to the seaside and using that much more hose to come back to the front? You know, if everybody's using pre-connects. Uh, so uh, I didn't say anything, but, you know, water puts out a lot of fire. Odds are they're coming from a department that's using fog nozzles. Oh, I guess so. And they, you know, people put out fires with fog nozzles. It's okay. Uh, I, I mean, I'm smooth. Well, what are you kidding me? Uh, I I had the privilege of forming the only squad company in all of Manhattan, and this was 1996. And I got to pick my firefighters. And when the commissioner, nice, when. When the commission says, okay, we're going to start picking our firefighters, he says, okay, Tracy, you go first. I says, okay. Commissioner, as you are aware, I'm coming from 35 truck, so I'm bringing a firefighter with me, Larry Vigilio, so my first pick will be Andy Fredericks. So right in the beginning, I picked two firefighters, and the rest of the captains would laugh, blah, 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 and they would go on. And those two firefighters would be working on 9-11, both of them, by the way. But to have Andy Fredericks, uh, and we were friends, by the way. Uh, I knew him before we formed Squad 18. As a matter of fact, I worked for Andy out at FDIC because Andy uh, hosted uh, hands-on engine company operations. And he gave myself and Dave McGrail, he was a captain out in Denver at the time. I was a captain uh, of 35 truck. And we worked for him. He was the lead instructor, and we were, you know, schleps. Uh, but we were lucky to be part of that. And then uh, a couple of years later, Dave and I would break away from en Andy's engine company ops, and Dave and I would just do standpipe ops, uh, you know, strictly on standpipes. Uh, so Andy, I really – I knew where he was coming from. It, in my career, if I met people – that was smarter than me, 
I latched onto you and I wouldn't let go. Because you were teaching me something. Bobby Pressel, when I met him, I latched onto him because you just sit like this, you talk, you learn something from him. And it would be that Bobby became friends with Mike Lombardo uh, from Buffalo. These are two brothers from another mother. Mm-hmm. You know, they're of the same cloth. Uh, and meeting Mike Lombardo, I mean, it was Bobby being invited down to Ocean City with Lombardo and them allowing me to tag along as a schlep, you know, in those live burn exercises. And we were having the time of our life. And I was learning, you know. Uh, and it was great, Ocean City. I was so impressed with a volunteer department that they had 61 high-rises at the time in their district that they were responding to. That was more high-rises than some of the companies in Brooklyn, you know, in their district to say, uh, and they were engaged. Uh, that was uh, that was a gift going to Ocean City, I'll tell you what. My wife and I are going down there this summer with the family. We're renting a place. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I love crib. <laughs> Yeah, Jerry, one of the guys watching, um, you probably remember him. John Holloway was instrumental oh in, in getting you and Pressler and Lombardo, all you guys down there. And, um, you know, at, you know, he since retired from the department. But, uh, you know, it, it was such a great thing, you know, especially as a combination department that we had you guys coming in. And it wasn't the it wasn't the rock star thing to say, hey, you know, we've got five man engine companies, six man truck companies. Look at us. Look at us. You're trying to say, okay, how do you guys operate? How do you work? What do you want to do? And try to make us the most proficient we can be. And Bobby, you kind of took a lot of that to heart as well. Um, I remember doing a lot of the training to say, when we had when we had three person crews, you said, all right, well, actually, for the short period we had four person crews. All right, let's train as four person crews. Let's let's practice like we play. They cut us to three person crews. All right, we still got to get that deuce and a half line in service. How are we going to do it? And yeah, I, I still remember um, you know the conversation. Oh my God, that deuce to half so heavy. Well, who who do you want to do it? The guy from Wrecking Parks, the tow truck driver. I mean, that's part of our job. So we got to figure this shit out. How we're going to do this stuff? But you know, Bobby, you took that same mindset, and um, you know, with a lot of those people. And uh, Jerry, real quick, if you don't mind, because I'm going to turn it over to Ben here in just a second. Uh, I know you're talking a little bit about. Uh, that's why I threw that T-shirt up. But the, you know, here there's there's an oldie but a goodie. I don't know if you remember before it was a squad. Oh, great, fantastic, yes, sir. It doesn't fit me anymore, just but it's it's still cool to have in the collection, you know what I mean? But uh, you know, did you hear the story about me uh, asking them to make T-shirts up when we were first formed as a company? No, go ahead. Well, you know, we're a brand new squad company. We didn't even have shirts yet. So, I says, gentlemen, think about this: we're an engine company in our first new district, and then past our first along district, we respond as a squad. So we do truck work. So let's make up shirts, and of course. The company was located in the West Village, and there's really a connotation to that. You know, it's rather bohemian and whatever else you want to call it. But in any event, I says, okay, blue T-shirts, Maltese Cross, Squad 18, Manhattan. But on the back, we could put a set of irons on one side, a hose and a nozzle on the other side, and right in the middle, we could put our motto. And our motto we go both ways. To think of how many shirts we could have sold in the neighborhood, you know, out the front door. People would be walking around the streets, sort of a little light in the loafers, but wearing a shirt that says we go both ways. Forget about it. We could have been millionaires. No, they didn't want to have those shirts made up. What could I say? 
missed opportunity, Chief. Ah, so Ben, uh, they said you were at a meeting, the Skull and Crossbones. Uh, is that where you were earlier? It was the Crochet Club. Oh, yeah. okay. I thought yeah. it was Skull and Crossbones. Yeah. No, it was, you uh, you got to be careful. Sometimes those needles get a little sharp, so your fingers oh. get real sensitive. Yeah. Oh. And, and Ben, I apologize. I told everybody that you were coming from your uh, weekly Dungeons and Dragons uh, leader meeting, your Dungeon oh, yeah. Master meeting. But I didn't realize yeah. it was Crochet Club, so I hope yeah. I, that, I corrected that for you. Dungeons hey, and Dragons next week. There, he knitted that shirt himself. Wow. Uh, I was going to put a filter uh, on on my screen here as a cat so that I'm halfway through I could say, I'm not a cat. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> mm. So, well, we're at about an hour and 20 minutes, um, which which typically we wrap up around an hour, but the, the conversation has been so great. Um, and we just kind of let it roll. And, and like, like Chief Tracy had said, you know, you learn from people that are smarter than you. So, I certainly wasn't going to stop it because there was a lot of really good stuff from the time I came in to, to now. So, um, so if we could, we'll just kind of go around the horn, our final closing thoughts, and then I'll take us out. Um, if that's cool with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Ben, if you don't mind, uh, walk me through the process. Cause as you know, I am technologically challenged, but I did want to throw up a, uh, a quick picture of, uh, Mike McMullen and also Chris Slutman. So, uh, let's yeah. see, share. Hold on. Yeah. Where where do you have the picture, Trevor? Boom, right there. Can you see it? No. Okay. So I might click the share <laughs> down at the bottom. All right, hold on. Yeah, screen. Well, go go ahead. I'll figure this out while you, while you're talking, and you come back to me, Ben. All right, Bobby. What are your your final thoughts? Uh, Jerry, I, I don't think this conversation is done. You should come back again sometime. Yes. Okay. Talk about some more stuff if you're yeah. willing to. Uh, it's just a, it's a pleasure to talk to you and and um, and hear what you have to say and uh, I'm sure that we want to hear a lot more about what you have to say in the future too. So um, you know we all we all share this passion with this firefighting and Amen. Uh, you know for all of you guys out there that are watching this that kind of got the slugs in your firehouse and stuff like that, you don't need them. Go out in your firehouse, go out in your engine bay, practice putting your gloves on, practice putting your mask on, practice throwing ladders, practice pulling your hose lines. Do your own thing, and then that will actually draw some more people out to do it with you. So um, get yourself proficient as you possibly can, because it's all about trying to become comfortable in an uncomfortable place. And um, that's what this job is all about. And if you're trying to be in a comfortable place, the fire service is the wrong place for you, <laughs> and you need to figure something else out. But um, thank you very much for coming on, Jerry. It was a, it was a blast talking with you. And um, thank you, Ben and Trevor. All right. Uh, I'm actually back, Ben. I went ahead and um, like like any good uh, half-ass officer, I went ahead and delegated this to you. So I just uh, emailed you those pictures if you want to go ahead and bring that up. But uh, while, while you're doing that, um, again, Chief Tracy, I just really want to thank you not only for coming on tonight, but also just you know, sharing your experiences and your knowledge with us over the years, whether it's been at FDIC, whether it's been at Ocean City or coming on tonight. Uh, yeah, we can always gain and uh, one of the things I always want to pass along to the folks is we have a lot of wisdom and, and knowledge and experience that walks out our door every day in the fire service, whether that's somebody who's retired, somebody who's passed on, or you just kind of fades away uh, into obscurity. And to try to regain that knowledge, I mean, we, we have to pay for that in blood, sweat, and tears, literally. And uh, you know, make, make sure we talk to some of these senior folks in, in the firehouse, some of our, our senior men and women and 
make sure that we uh, you know, cultivate some of the knowledge from our retirees that you know they've been there, they've done that, they've already put the sweat equity into it, and they paid their their pound of flesh in our industry. So um, you know, try to make sure that we have those conversations. And I know in the last academy class that I had the privilege of being um, involved in. We brought the retirees in for a lunch, and for the first hour, we told the recruits just to shut up and listen. And for the second hour, talk to these guys, and you know, get you gain from some of their experience. They've been there, they've done it, um, and they'll tell you about their mistakes too, because they're, they're not they're not shy about it. So you make make sure that we uh, you do right the fire service. Like I said, you know, keep learning, keep progressing, make sure that we're doing the right thing for the right reason. And you know, Chief Trace, you and I were having a uh, conversation about the purity of the industry. And that's something that I think that uh, as folks that have been in this industry for a while at, at varying levels, we can really instill that in the generations coming up so they see things through that lens. But uh, Jerry, I really appreciate you taking your time tonight. And uh, Ben, were you able to get those pictures? Yes, sir. I, if you wouldn't mind real quick, um, before you came on, Ben, we were talking about the um, really looking at Memorial Day, not only for the kickoff to summer and also, the uh, you know to be able to recognize those people who made the ultimate sacrifice and service to our country, but this is uh, firefighter paramedic Mike McMullen, also sergeant with the uh, Army National Guard, and you know again he was um, you know he was killed in 2000. Well, he was injured in 2005 and succumbed those injuries uh, a couple weeks later in early 2006 uh, in Iraq. And then if you could put up um, Staff Sergeant Chris Slutman, uh, also a 15 year veteran at FDMY in uh, Ladder 27, and uh, he was killed by a roadside bomb back in 2019, April of 2019. So um, I know there's many, many more out there, uh, folks in our industry who've lived in life service, not only as firefighters, but also uh, in service to our country in the military. So again, I just want to thank everybody who has uh, served previously and is currently serving, and of course, those who have uh, you know sacrificed their lives to uh, make our country what it is today and make things better for us. So again, thank you everybody. And uh, we'll send it over to Chief Tracy for his final words. Okay, thank you. And God bless you for uh, bringing up those, uh, those firefighter servicemen, God bless them. Uh, we shall never forget. You know, earlier we were talking uh, and I had made the comment, I could teach you, but I can't understand it for you. Uh, Einstein, was quoted once by saying, if when you're explaining something, if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't know the subject good enough. And we're not talking about dumbing anything down, but we're saying if you can explain it in the terms that somebody could understand it, they'll get it. And really that's what that's all about. So uh, try not to make things so complicated. Uh, and. It's all about sharing. Thank you very much for this opportunity, gentlemen. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Thank you, Chief. Um, thank you, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. So some some closing thoughts. And again, I did. I was fortunate. I was able to do a lot of listening through all of that. Um, but one of the things that I remember that we that was on conversation when I first tuned in was talking about mentoring. Um, and there was something I can't remember where it was posted. I was looking for it. It was on social media. Um, but it said, if they suck, mentor them. I said, and if, 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 if you, if you don't mentor them or if you don't, then you suck. Um, so don't suck. Right? I can said that Kirk. Yeah. 
Um, so, so mentor the probie, mentor, mentor as the, as the senior fireman, mentor that person to take your spot. You're the chauffeur, wherever you are, as you're the company officer, as you move up, you have to mentor your, your replacement. Um, that's just how it is. Take care of the people that you work with and, and help them achieve the things that you have. Um, that's, that's how the fire service works. So, uh, with that being said, we're going to, Oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention was, um, we always talk about, um, having that go get it attitude and that mindset of we're going in. Um, we, we talk a lot about this and we always reference, uh, chief Doug Scott, which we're trying to get, get to come on. Um, but he's always, we've always quoted him as he doesn't want, he wants the, the crew to be bulldogs. He wants that company officer is holding a leash and he doesn't want to have to push them with that leash because one, you can't, um, but he wants, he wants to be able to, to let them go aggressive interior attack, going to do the job, going to put the fire out um, and then pull them back. If he has to, as the officer, if he sees things are going from sugar to shit, he can pull them back, reevaluate and go from there. But he, he, and I think this is a great analogy. He wants that. Easier that said than done. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no, no. What you say, he can pull them back. No, oh, yeah. sometimes that's the problem. <laughs> Pulling them back. Mm-hmm. Chief, I got this. We got this. Yeah, and it's out 27 windows over your head. Uh, so, I, and I didn't mean to interrupt. You're, you're good, Chief. But sometimes that's the issue. Uh, pulling them back. They have to respect you to the point where if you say, all right, gentlemen, let's go. You're out. That they'll actually come. And Chief, real, real quick, and Ben, I don't mean to belabor this, but I call uh, Chief Tracy, I call that the rule of twos, that as soon as you say, hey, I need you to pull back out, hey, Chief, I need two more minutes, and <laughs> two, they're two feet closer to the building than you said they should be, and then there's two more guys on the line than there were before. So it's the rule of twos across the board, but yep. they're firemen. What are they going to do? Exactly. So, all right, we'll finish wrapping this up. Thirsty Thursday, we are back uh, June 10th. Um, we're, we're going to be changing up our programs for the summer. Uh, we're going to once a month. So June 10th will be the only thirsty Thursday in June. Um, and then as we go back into the fall, we're going to try and change our format again. Uh, thirsty Thursday with a special guest one day a month. And then, um, start t- looking at, uh, offering some, some of our, some of the strike the box classes online. Um, so again, like I said, June 10th, we'll be back. Um, chief Tracy, I know we have talked, um, prior to all of this you have a book uh that's going for review um on high-rise operations so um when you see that that's gonna be by fire engineering and penwell correct yes the title high-rise buildings understanding the challenge okay so um folks as you guys are out there if you if you're checking the um their website seeing what kind of stuff they have coming out be on the watch out for that um i as you can tell from the conversation tonight, Chief Tracy is a, is a wealth of knowledge, a great resource. So um, I, I know I'm looking forward to the book uh, and I'll be I'll be picking that up as soon as I can. So, um, again, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate everybody's uh, tuning in. Chief Tracy, again, we appreciate uh, you coming on and joining us. We will definitely try and get you back on um, if you. you're interested and, and available. Um, but other than that, have hope everybody has a safe and wonderful weekend. Enjoy the reason for the or remember the reason for this weekend. Um, like, like Trevor had said, it's for those that have passed, um, and keep them in your thoughts as we, as we move forward. So thank you. Good night and stay safe. God bless you.